let me just say a few words, personal words to you first of all, to say uh, it's a great joy to be back with you. Um, this is the first time I think I've preached, well, no, it's the second time I've preached since the beginning of lockdown. And I think I lost my confidence in uh, preaching, but um, I'm very, very thankful to be with you. I uh, reckon your pastor to be one of my closest friends. We WhatsApp one another regularly. And since I got to know you in the former building, I have prayed for this church every week regularly. And I prayed especially through the difficulties that you have come through. And I just want to bring you greetings from my home church in uh, Shotton in North Wales. And um, the pastor has preached there. when I hesitate, it's because I'm now in what they call Ecclesiastes 12, where you're getting old, and your eyesight is going, and your teeth are falling out, and you're afraid of heights, and the word that you want to speak doesn't come until 10 seconds later. So I trust that you will bear with me as, um, as I'm preaching with you. I do have a, pol- a problem with balance. That's why I'm standing here like this. Um, so... Having said that, it's, it's a joy to be with you, and uh, I pray that God will continue to bless you and to encourage you, and I do bring greetings from my home church. Now, if you have your Bible available, let's turn together to the book of Ruth. I'm reading myself from the New King James Version, which is slightly different from yours, um, I'm saying things I really shouldn't, but um, the wonderful statement in chapter 1 where Ruth is speaking to Naomi is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, poetically and spiritually. And um, I prefer to read it in the authorised King James Version, but it is a beautiful statement, and we'll be looking at that Uh, shortly. So if you've got your Bible open at that page, it may help you as we go along. And when we turn to this book of Ruth, we discover that it's a story that begins with tragedy and it ends with glory. And all the events and all the people are being, being taken up and they're being woven into the thread of God's purposes, those purposes of redemption which will be seen fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And it is all worked out in order to bring King David to his throne and in order to bring the Lord Jesus Christ to his greater throne. And we are introduced to a man named Elimelech, who was a Jew living in the Promised Land with his wife and Naomi and two sons when unexpectedly a famine overtakes them. So taking his wife and two sons, he went to live in the land of Moab. That was the land of the enemies of God's people. And in the light of what follows, it's questionable, to my mind anyway, as to whether he was right in making that decision. Then we are told that Elimelech died, and his two sons married Moabite women. Now remember... That was against the law of God. 
And these two sons then died. And Naomi then heard that the Lord had visited his people and she recognized that God was speaking to her when she heard that news. So she decided that she must go back to Judah, the place where she ought always to have been and where she eventually attained to the full blessings of God. Now, I want to take up the narrative, especially in chapter 1, at verses 6 and 7. And I may not read them, but I point them, you to them. So you have three widows, Naomi and her daughters-in-law, and they're tra- travelling along the road that will take them to Naomi's homeland. And when they left the land of Moab, the two daughters-in-law seemed decided that they would go all the way to Bethlehem, with Naomi. But the matter wasn't fully settled, and Naomi knew that it needed to be settled, and especially as they reached the border of the land. So it seems obvious that somewhere between the land of Moab and the town of Bethlehem, there was an obvious geographical location where they stop on their journey. It might have been a bend in the road, it might have been a bridge, it might have been a wayside resting place, but they stopped there. And the three women have obviously reached a crossroads, and it's there that some final decisions have to be taken, and some momentous choices have to be made between Moab on the one hand and Bethlehem on the other. Now, it's obvious that it wasn't only a geographical crossroad, For these ladies, it was also a great turning point in each of their lives. Now look what it says in verses 11 to 13. Naomi is setting the situation before them with all the clear reality of what would be involved. She's not sending these daughters away because she didn't want them or because she doubted them. She felt that she had no claim to the great sacrifices that they were willing to make on her behalf. So it's as if she's saying to them, I don't know what is going to happen to me, but I don't want to bring you down with myself. So if her circumstances and situation in Judah did not turn out as she wished, she didn't want them to be involved with whatever might happen to her. So you notice in verse 8, May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. So both of these women receive that wonderful commendation from their mother-in-law. Now, mother-in-laws don't usually get a good name, but here is a remarkable statement that she is saying to these two women, reminding them of the wonderful demonstration of caring love and generosity of spirit that they have shown to Naomi. And that had been the level of the relationship between these women up until this point at this crossroads. And the considerations that Naomi is now placing before them are in effect the same considerations that are put to men and women in the gospel of Christ. In other words, it's a parable or an illustration of Christian pilgrimage 
she's enumerating the difficulties and the hardships of the way. The loneliness, the lack of earthly prospects, the cost of going forward, the cost of going onward. And so she feels that, humanly speaking, the prospect for these women finding husbands was not very bright or very encouraging. And these were the days when not to have a husband was not to have protection, it was not to have honor, it was not to have provision, it was not to have resources. In a sense, it was not to have a future. So Naomi is very wise in insisting that these two women count the cost before they make any commitment to such a future. It would be a way of life that they might have cause to regret later on. She's also being very, very honest in saying that she believed that everything that had happened to her was because the hand of God had been against her. Look at what it says in verses 20 and 21. Don't call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. Now, the significant thing about what she's saying is not just that her life has been made bitter, but that God's hand was in that bitterness. She's seen her whole life being systematically dismantled as she had to leave home, go to Moab, then she lost her husband, and then she loses her two sons, and she's saying that everything that she'd lived through was the result of her spiritual disobedience. Now, that's the conclusion that she placed upon this whole episode, and we don't have any reason or warrant to say that she was wrong. She is saying that the Lord's hand was in all of this, and what the Lord had done was to bring her to this turning point and this crossroads in her life. However, the chastisement of the Lord had done something. It had produced fruit, spiritual fruit, in Naomi's life, not least for the fact that she is not so self-absorbed And she cannot think of the interests of these two daughters-in-law. So the situation and the prospects are being plainly put before them both. Going to Bethlehem is an unknown future. It carried with it the possibility, the real possibility of isolation and ostracism, loneliness and hardship. If you come with me, there's a great possibility of that happening. So these are the issues and these are the alternatives that Naomi is bringing to bear upon these two young women, urging them to think very, very carefully and to count the cost if they are going to cross this border. The same kind of language you will probably know that our Lord used with the rich young ruler. If you're thinking of following me, you have to count the cost. Now it was at this situation that Naomi puts before them and it begins to sift these two women. And it was this that brought about the parting of the ways. And we are then told how the two women responded and reacted. They reacted in different ways. And the decisions that they made revealed the wonderful example of loyalty by Ruth. Now, it's the subject of loyalty that I want to speak to you about. That's all the introduction, but don't worry, 
you won't be here till three o'clock. I want to consider four headings under it. First of all, to consider the ties of loyalty, then to look at the tests of loyalty, then to consider the tensions of loyalty, and then finally to consider the triumphs of loyalty. So first of all, the ties of loyalty. If you look at verses 3 to 5, you will see what those ties clearly meant as far as Ruth was concerned. She had entered into a marriage, and she'd taken upon herself the responsibilities of marriage. And part of that responsibility was her loyalty to her husband and to her mother-in-law, now her widowed mother-in-law. And that loyalty has been demonstrated in her life up until this point. Since her marriage, she's been a faithful, supportive daughter-in-law. Now look at what Naomi says about this in verse 8. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. Now if you turn over in your Bible to chapter 2 and verse 11 where you have a statement by Boaz. Most of you are aware of this story. And look at what it says in chapter 2 and verse 11. Boaz is saying, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. So Boaz is recognizing that Ruth has been a devoted, loyal daughter-in-law. And Ruth's ties of loyalty were very, very real, and they were very, very strong. And it's true that for most people in life, we all have certain ties of loyalty. Some of them are placed upon us without any option on our part. We are born into situations where we are required to be loyal. Simply being a member of a family, you have to be loyal to your family. You have to be, uh, have duty towards your family. You have to honor your family, seek the welfare of your family. So you have loyalties, ties of loyalty in various areas of life. And while some of them we receive without any option on our part, there are others that we take on deliberately. And that's what Ruth has been doing with Naomi. It was not something that was forced or imposed upon her. When she chooses to do this, she chose to accept it. And Naomi made it quite clear that she had nothing and she had no prospects at that moment. But it was at such a time that Ruth pledges herself for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to keep only unto you, to Naomi and to Naomi's Lord. And if Naomi became an exile, Ruth would be exiled with her. If she suffered, Ruth would suffer with her and so on. Now, some people enter into these ties of loyalty when it comes to regard marriage. And they take on these loyalties and they make a vow to be true to you. Sickness and health. And they make a vow. From time to time, I have noticed over the years that somebody may say to me, I, I, I just feel I'm going to get a divorce or separate. Why? Well, I no longer love her. And I have to say, what's that got to do with it? What's that got to do with it? You promised to be true to her, for good or for ill. 
we make vows. When we have children, we have to have the loyalty towards our children. In your job, you take on a job and you have to be loyal to your boss and to the company and so on. When you become a member of a church, you do that deliberately. You join deliberately. Nobody recruits you. It's your voluntary wish. And so you join a church and you take up some form of Christian work and you take that up deliberately. And all of those things bring with them ties of loyalty where you are expected to be faithful and true, to remain true to that situation, to stick with it through thick and thin. There are other ties of loyalty that come to us unexpectedly. You can help somebody in their time of need and you don't realize where that's going to lead to. The Good Samaritan was a good example. And that kind of situation can come upon any one of us. Things that can happen. You didn't expect it to happen. You didn't anticipate it. But as a result, you find yourself in a situation that demands you to be faithful and to be loyal. We have a situation in the UK at the moment where two, two famous rugby players were bosom pals, bosom friends, and one had what we call motor neuron disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, and the other one was his friend, and the other one decided, because of his loyalty to his friend, he would do everything to support him. And he's running marathons, he's climbing mountains in order to raise funds for the Motor Neuron Association. He's doing it out of loyalty. Now, the greatest loyalty for those of us who are believers is our loyalty toward the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result of our conversion, we've been adopted into the family of God. We have become citizens of the kingdom of God, and there are certain spiritual demands made upon us. And our Lord himself is the example to us in every area of our life. He himself bound himself to us with the cords of love in such a way that he demands loyalty from us to the core. Now look at verses 6 to 9 in chapter 1. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her twin two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So looking at the demands of loyalty, the tests of loyalty, by its very nature, loyalty as something in a person's life has to be tested for it to be seen for what it really is. You can't say he's loyal if he's not being showing, having to show loyalty. So Ruth's commitment to Naomi is by any standards quite a remarkable thing. Outwardly, it seems that there is very little that bound Ruth and Naomi together. They were from a different race. 
They were from a different culture. They had a different language. They were different, obviously, in all kinds of ways. Yet in the providence of God, they've been brought together into a loving relationship similar to that between Jonathan and David. And Ruth and Naomi were obviously devoted to each other. And you'll find that in verses 16 and 17, how Ruth never sets any limits as to what she would do or how far she would go or how much she was willing to give to Naomi. She demonstrated her sincere and genuine faith in God by giving to Naomi everything that she could. No matter what the cost will be, she was going to give it to Naomi. And that is seen in the outworking of the rest of the story, how Ruth fulfills that promise when it was a very, very difficult thing for her to do. She is demonstrating the truth of Proverbs 17:17: A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And here is Ruth demonstrating that to Naomi. Now that, of course, is not simply the test of human friendship. It is also one of the fundamental characteristics of Christian discipleship. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, We were willing to have imputed and parted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own selves, because you were dear unto us. 2 Corinthians 12.15 I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. And James teaches us that faith without works is dead. And Ruth's faith is being demonstrated by her works as she gives herself to Naomi. She was willing from that day forward for the remainder of her life to share everything with Naomi. So she's committing herself to be with Naomi throughout all the days of joy or sorrow, prosperity, adversity, through tragedy or triumph. Now look at verses 19 and 20. The two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened that when they had come to Bethlehem, that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, the Almighty has afflicted me. Now try and imagine it in your, in your mind. As these two are coming into this town. And think of what it meant for Naomi to come back to the place where she had lived and from which she had departed. There was no welcoming committee in Bethlehem. But the whole town, we are told, was a buzz of gossip. Is this Naomi? And the appearance on this occasion brought some people to a place of great surprise. Why? What's she doing here? Never even know that she was still alive. And probably they never expected to see Naomi again. She's been away for over 10 years and she didn't have an iPhone. She couldn't go on Facebook. She's been all that time. People could be wondering, as they do sometimes with people of my age, and our brother here is, again, an octogenarian, and people say, oh, is he still alive? <laughs> yes, I am, don't worry, or I may not be. But they say, is she still alive? 
She'd gone out with her husband and two sons, and now she's returning as a stranger, almost, but with a stranger from Moab of all places. She's brought this Moabite with her. Now, Naomi is appearing in a very different light than the one in which they knew her in the past. Things have happened. All the past is now being being brought before her mind once again, what it was like before she left Bethlehem. All the times of joy, the times of blessing, the birth of her sons. And notice in verse 19, the verb, they said, and that verb apparently is in the feminine form, indicating that it was the women who said it. And one of the commentators translated as the gossips were saying, is this Naomi? That's a question. It's also a commentary. Women are very adept at doing that. They can ask you a question, but it's also a commentary. It's humbling. It's humiliating for Naomi to walk back into that town which she had left so full of pride, maybe looking at her former home, listening to those who'd been her neighbours and her friends. All the memories would be revived, and she would recall the period in her life when everything had been going well, and it was summed up in her name, Pleasant. But now she returns in this distressing condition. No husband, no sons, no visible means of support, nothing of her former glory, and she tells them that she had gone out full, either materially or emotionally, or she was a woman that was just full of herself and full of her own opinions. And the Lord has emptied her. And in the process, he has done something in her, and he's done something for her. And if Naomi had only realized that although she has sown in tears, she is about to reap in joy. It's not just a casual remark. The words in scripture are significant. She arrived in the time of barley harvest. It's not just a passing comment. We're supposed to notice the significance It was the time of barley harvest. And she's describing her feelings when she says, call me Mara, bitter. So you begin to gather just how hard it was for her. Passing through these deep waters, humbled under the mighty hand of God. The recollection of how things used to be. The bitterness of soul that she's feeling now. And she remembers everything that she had lost and all the things that she had missed. And she sees the town of Bethlehem, bereft of all those things that had made it so precious to her. However, she is a firm believer. And she knew that both sun and shadow come from the hand of the Almighty. And she recognizes that what had happened to her was all part of the purposes of God for her life. And like David in the days of his trouble, conscious of the divine chastening in his life, he didn't doubt the Lord and he didn't despair concerning the future 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, I shall yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. And there are many of the Lord's people who've been brought to the place where they have to say that. The Lord has emptied them. They were full, full of themselves. But God has emptied me. And if it is God who is afflicting us, then we need to take special heed to what God is doing. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are being rebuked by him. And like Job and Naomi, there are times when we need to come to the place where we say, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems him good. And the one who afflicts believers is none other than the one who is their God and their Father. And we need to come to the place that our Saviour came to when he said, the cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And despite the fact that Naomi was a woman of faith, true faith, she's experiencing sadness and grief and sorrow. But as she is going through that experience, what's happening? Ruth is there alongside her, going through these things with her. That's the first corn of the harvest. And the situation was no more easy for Ruth than it was for Naomi. Ruth is sharing the bitterness that Naomi is sharing. And Ruth, like many people, having gone to a different country, looked upon by other people, despised perhaps as a stranger or an incomer, she's an immigrant, someone who's come from a country whose people are the enemies of Israel. I can remember many years ago, I would be about, I forget, about five or six, I lived in a poor area of Liverpool, and um, on the next block of streets, there was um, a pork butcher, Mr. and Mrs. Moss. They run this pork butcher's shop. Very, very popular. People used to queue at the, the shop and so on. Once the war came, it was discovered that they were German. And they were molested. The shop windows were broken by people who simply felt this is an enemy of this country. So here is Naomi coming in with Ruth. And then she finds herself to be in this difficult situation. And in chapter 2 and verse 10, notice what she says. Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner, she could have reacted to what was happening. She could have complained to Naomi because of the situation that they're now in. It's totally different from what she expected in comparison to where she was living in Moab. She could have bemoaned the situation. She could have complained about her lot and so on, but she didn't. She remained true and loyal in the midst of these tensions. It was a great test of her loyalty would she continue to remain with Naomi? And there are situations that arise, as they did with Ruth here, 
concerning your loyalty which will be tested for what it really is. You may have trouble in the family. Maybe the father dies. Maybe the mother is widowed. Situations may arise in your marriage that bring about tests to your loyalty or to one another. You may have situations where you have aged parents. They may need to go to a care home. You're going to be tested in your loyalty. Or maybe a husband or a wife finds that their partner has been unfaithful. Can they still remain faithful and loyal in that kind of a situation? Your children can bring demands. They can take you through difficult situations. Can you still remain true to those children? Friends who need loyalty and they may get into trouble or your friend may let you down miserably or your friend may fall into some grievous sin. Can you still remain loyal to that friend? And the test may come within the sphere of the place of your work. Are you going to remain loyal in that workplace even though things are going against you? It can happen within your church of which you are a member. Things may not live up to your expectations. The church is in decline. The ministry comes to an end. All of which can test the ties of loyalty. Will you remain faithful? Will you remain true? And the same is on a wider level. It's comparatively easy to take up with Christ when everybody else around you is doing the same. And when the Christian church is riding on the crest of a wave of popular opinion, but the loyal person is the person who, when his church, as it were, is in rags and tatters and is going through the mud and the mire, that demands loyalty. To take up with Christ when everybody else is doing the same is something that most people can do. But there are times, like today, when the gospel and the Christian church are at a discount. The church is despised, it's ridiculed, it's assailed by its critics, the debunkers. The truths of scriptures are being undermined. People are being challenged because they're keeping to the old paths and they're being told that they're out of date and they're irrelevant. Loyalty is to be when you take up with Christ and you remain true to Christ in difficult times. It's the greatest thing to enlist in the army of Christ when thousands are doing the same and volunteering. But it's something else to do it when nobody else is found to be coming forward. And it's far better to hold a candle in the darkness of declension than to do it when there is a blazing daylight all around you. That's the test that comes. That is the need for loyalty, and it must be demonstrated. When the days are dark and there's no interest in the things of God, it's then that the soldier of Christ needs to remain true to his post. And Ruth's loyalty to Naomi was sorely tried and it was sorely tested. The ties of loyalty, the tests of loyalty, the tensions or conflicts of loyalty, you see that in verse 15. Ruth is torn between her mother-in-law and her sister. Now bear in mind that she must also have had a family in Moab, apart from Naomi. And there must have been a terrible conflict of interests in her. She sees her sister, her own flesh and blood, going back to their own home and going back to their own mother. She sees all of that on the one hand. She looks at Naomi and all that Naomi stands for on the other hand, and not simply is it a matter of which mother to choose, 
She's facing the call of God on the one hand in order to follow him. And there will always be some pressing family need which cries out for attention. And that is precisely where the tensions can come in. The claims of discipleship on the one hand are great. And we must give our loyalty to Christ and to those claims. But that's the tension. That's the conflict. We have conflicting loyalties. Good and honest and legitimate things. All the matter of these things. But they can be in contrast to that which is the best. And Jesus demands loyalty from his followers over every other legitimate claim. That's what taking up the cross is all about. Denying yourself, placing Christ before every other tie and every other claim in our lives. It could mean, and it has meant, refusing a proposal of marriage because the person didn't want to marry an unbeliever. And many people have had that test applied to them. The test as to whether I honour God or whether I profane his day on the Lord's day. It may be the test which can cost you your job. If you say, I am not going to call this man a woman. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to wear this lanyard with the rainbow to say that I'm supporting gay pride. And that, that's a test that many Christians are facing at the moment. It's a test. It's a conflict. And so you've got to decide, am I willing to go through with all of this? Now, there are some Christians with great abilities. And, well, think of those those people who are doctors and they're being asked to do certain things that go against their faith in Christ. Are you going to perform that abortion or are you not? These are the tests, the tensions, the ties of loyalty. But then let me finish by saying this. The ties, the tests, the tensions but the triumphs of loyalty. Chapter 1 and verse 14. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye and went back. But Ruth clung to her mother-in-law and went forward. And loyalty means being a Ruth when everybody else is being an Orpah. But that kind of loyalty is always rewarded Look again at chapter 2 and verse 2. So Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favour. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Now it's Ruth that's taking the initiative. Here they are, Ruth and her mother-in-law, penniless, no social security. Something had to be done in the providence of God because they're finding themselves in this situation. But it happened at the time of barley harvest. The time of barley harvest. And God's timing is always perfect. And Ruth makes the move to go and find work to help them so that she might care for her mother-in-law. And she was willing to do the most humble and the most menial task in order to provide for them both. Naomi obviously knew 
that she had rich relatives, one of whom was Boaz. But whether she has told Ruth this or not, she wasn't going to presume upon these rich relatives on their kindness or on their generosity. And it seems as if at this point, she's not mentioned this rich relative to Ruth. So Ruth knows of no other way of obtaining bread for them apart from her own initiative. And those of you who know that Leviticus 19, the Lord made this stipulation. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not glean your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. That was the merciful provision of a caring, compassionate God for the needs of outcasts and poor and strangers. And Ruth was an outcast, she was poor, and she was a stranger. And it's more than likely that Naomi told Ruth about the provisions made in the law for the people like themselves. So when Ruth goes to the glean in the fields, she didn't do it in any kind of surreptitious way. That was her legal right. She was entitled to do this work, but in chapter 2 and verse 7, she doesn't demand those rights. She comes courteously and politely, and she asks permission if she can glean in the field. And having obtained the permission, she then labors for a whole day. She labors. Hard, back-breaking work. Some of the artist pictures of Ruth, you know, wonderfully fresh and so on, um, used to have a, a lovely... Christian man who, was a, who learned to read and write in the Bible, but um, he occasionally he would preach and he would speak about Ruth gleaming in the field. Well, she wasn't gleaming, she was sweating, and it was a hard job, and she's doing that. And the point that I'm making is this, it is one thing to say that we believe in Christ, it's another thing to demonstrate that by our actions. And Ruth is fulfilling her responsibilities in the most irksome tasks, in the most difficult situations. And she's seeking to be faithful and loyal to her aged mother-in-law by keeping the house and the home together, by laboring day in and day out, working among the kind of people whose lot in life can make them coarse and rough and insensitive. These men that were working in these fields were not all wonderful pals and so on. There was a danger she could be raped. Could she? That's why later on there was the danger of her going down to Boaz. And Boaz recognized that danger. So it's a place of hazard, a place of danger. Rough farm laborers, the language far from being choice, a very different situation that she might have expected. But it was there that her faith and her loyalty is being demonstrated by her devotion to Naomi. And by doing that, this woman was showing her devotion to God. And that is how true faith is to be worked out. Just where you are, in that office, in that shop, in that home, in that factory, and your life can speak volumes. Ruth was a stranger in a strange country, but she's making a deep impression upon the people around her. Have you noticed how little you hear Ruth say anything in this book? You don't hear her speak very often. It's a thing that is very, very important. It's one thing to say. It's another thing to be. 
You can say that you're a Christian. How is that seen? It's another thing to be. Do you have a care for other people? Do you have a care for your neighbor? Do you have a care for those people where, where you work? Do you live out your life? Oh, it's, it's quite easy to say to them, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a born-again Christian, and give them a tract. I'm not denigrating giving out tracts, but anyone can give out a tract. How do you react to them when they're going through trouble? Do you try to help them? Do you try to comfort them? Do you try to strengthen them? I don't know about your church, really. I've been here a few times. Do you ever go across the aisle and speak to the person over there? Or have you been coming to the church for months, perhaps years, and you've never really gone out of your way to go across the aisle and to say, good morning, how are you? How are things with you? It's one thing to say that we are church members. It's one thing to say that we're dedicated Christians. But how has it worked out? Do you know whether that person sitting next to you is going through a really difficult problem? Or have you never even bothered to ask? It's being, not saying, that is important to Christ. And when you do that, you will discover something that will happen in your life. God will say to you, whether you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. I will be your God. That's the reward of being faithful to Christ in your loyalty. Christ will show his faithfulness to you. Well, that's the story of Ruth as I'm going to speak it to you. Let's bow together in prayer. O Lord our God and our gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you that you speak to us through your word, you challenge us, you encourage us and you bless us. And we do ask that you will apply your word to our hearts and minds, our consciences, and may it do something in our lives so that those around us, in our family, in our place of work, can see something that is different about us and that we may be able by that difference to bring them into a knowledge of Christ. O Lord, hear our prayers, receive our thanks. We trust you to do these things for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.